Thanks, Paul, and good day, everyone. Great to see you uh, here today. Well done, making it through the flood waters. Um, you're sitting near a drip. Feel free to move if you'd like to. That's going to be a distraction. If you can find a seat that doesn't have a drip above it. Um, what a great prayer from Psalm 52 as we come to God's Word this morning. We're going to think about that uh, passage that Paul's just read for us. Um, let me read these verses as we pray together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word here in the Bible and pray that as we hear it and respond that we would be like olive trees that flourish in the house of God, trusting in your unfailing love forever and ever, that for what you have done we will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people and we would hope in your name because your name is good. Pray that you do this for us this morning, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, well, misplaced confidence in yourself can be funny, uh, it can be dangerous, and it can be rather delusional. I feel like I've been in circumstances where all three things have been true. I've been the self-assured toddler with three litres of milk, I can do this all by myself. I've been the overconfident learner driver. Yep, I think I can fit in there. I've been the overconfident aspiring DIY electrician. It's not that complicated. I've been the inexperienced fullback under the highball. Yep, I've got that. Funny, dangerous, delusional. I tell you what, when it comes to your standing before God and your eternal future, you do not want misplaced self-confidence. It won't be funny. It is eternally dangerous. And so listen to Jesus' words. We have in front of us this morning the false confidence of those who continue to oppose Jesus and reject him. Their confidence is in themselves. You can summarise that self-confidence by saying to Jesus, we're not listening. Jesus contrasts that with the true confidence of those who would trust and follow him, his disciples, which you can summarise by saying it's by faith alone in Jesus. False confidence, we're not listening, we trust in ourselves. True confidence, it's faith alone, we only trust in Jesus. They're the two things that we're seeing this morning. The false confidence comes from the Pharisees and the religious leaders, those who continue to oppose and reject Jesus. Uh, they're um, drunk with money and worldly power and self-justifying religiosity. They're manipulative rule keepers who try to justify themselves before God compared to people who know that they've fallen short of God's glory. 
who know that in the end they are unworthy servants who will kick down the door to the kingdom of God as they hear the good news of grace and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus. They're the two groups of people we're going to see. My great prayer is that we will all leave here this morning and that even those sitting on their couch safely at home would know the true confidence that comes through faith in Jesus alone. Let's contrast that firstly with the false confidence of the Pharisees summarised by that picture. We are not listening. Pick it up with me at verse 14 of chapter 16 where we read that the Pharisees who loved money heard all that Jesus was teaching and were sneering at him. Having heard from Jesus that you cannot serve both God and money, you cannot hold tightly to money and hold tightly to God, it just doesn't work. The Pharisees hear Jesus, but they sneer at him. They oppose and reject him because, Jesus says, they love their money. Verse 15, he says, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Here is the picture of religious self-righteousness. What the Pharisees are primarily concerned about is how other people see them, about the appearances, about what, is, uh, what things look like on the outside. But that terrifying reality is that God knows what's going on inside your heart. That you can have all the appearances of uh, religious uprightness and moral sensitivity, but God really knows what's going on in your heart. And it's worse than that because it's not just how other people see them, but it's about their own uh, thinking that they can establish their own standing before God in how they manipulate his law. Have a look at verse 16. Jesus says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom is being preached and everyone's forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Uh, here is Jesus uh, reinforcing the fact that the law that uh, the law of God, the law and the prophets, the summary statement that constitutes the whole of the Old Testament, uh, that has been proclaimed until John, uh, is that law that God gave to his people so that they could understand what life in his world is meant to look like, of what a relationship with God was meant to look like. Here is my law, God said to his rescued people. Here is how you live out a relationship of, of being God's rescued people. The Pharisees and Israel took God's law, his good law, and they manipulated it, they failed to keep it, they added to it, they made it this impossible standard uh, that stood in the way of people knowing the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And since the coming of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus himself, as the good news of God's grace is preached, that impossible standard is dropped and all those who hear the good news of grace and forgiveness in Jesus, those that Jesus had talked about had coming from the highways and byways 
to find rescue in him. They are kicking the door down to the kingdom. And as an example of where the Pharisees have manipulated God's law and applied it for their own self-righteousness and their own self-justification, Jesus talks to them about the issue of divorce. Have a look at verse 18. He says, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is a good reminder, isn't it, from Jesus, that when we uh, think about the issues of ethics and living out the Christian life, that taking verses in isolation can be blunt instruments, they can be insensitive, they can sound insensitive and blunt, even from the lips of the most compassionate and loving man the world has ever seen. We need to remember that what Jesus is addressing here is the Pharisees' self-righteousness and their own self-justification. And the thing that Jesus is pointing to in the way that the Pharisees applied God's law is that they were kind of like a corrupt politician. A corrupt politician who who kind of looks at the, the, the requirements of the law and looks at their own life and their own need for money and power in their own seat and then changes the law in order to prop up their own power and their own standing. And so where God provided um, the, the, the reality of divorce because of the hardness of our hearts, because God knew the way that sin wreaks havoc in our lives and in the lives of even those that we love, God provided the last resort of divorce to recognise a concession that there are broken circumstances in which people need divorce in order to care for those who would otherwise be vulnerable. Divorce exists because of human failings, because of the way our own sin can distort our attempts at faithfulness and distort our own loves. But marriage in the Bible is always meant to reflect the permanent and faithful love of God. Marriage is always meant to be an exclusive and complementary love of a husband and a wife until they're parted by death. The Pharisees had taken this beautiful picture of God's love and faithfulness and they had distorted it to their own ends and for the use of people, particularly women, whom they saw as disposable and cheap. So you can look at some literature from the second century, uh, some laws that the Pharisees had put in place around divorce, things like if your wife is no longer beautiful, you can divorce her. If she mucks up the dinner, you can divorce her. Where they distort God's good law for their own selfish ends and fail to reflect his picture of faithfulness and love to the world. Jesus is turning to the Pharisees who were using people and abusing people and they were doing it in the name of the law, the law of God. And he says, your righteousness is a sham. The love of money, sex and power, using and despising people Jesus says, 
you've got all the values of God's kingdom completely upside down. Clinging to money and you're using people, you're meant to use money and cling to people. It's the sham righteousness of the Pharisees that Jesus is addressing. And I wonder if you look at that kind of religious self-righteousness and consider what it might look like in our lives. One small diagnostic way of looking for self-righteousness and self-justification in your own life is to think about how you might pray. Do we pray by rattling off our CV and the things that we have done? Are our prayers full of self-congratulation with very little dependence and very little confession? That kind of religious hypocrisy, self-justification, thinking that you can twist and manipulate God's own law for your own standing before people and even before Him. It's not funny and it's not just delusional. It is eternally dangerous. So Jesus tells a story that should, point, that should ram that point home. Have a look with me at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, where he was in torment, He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. Now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Like his family, this dead man had Moses and the prophets. He had God's word. He had the testimony of God's character and the requirements of God's law to repent and believe in the good news but they would not listen. And in his life, this rich man clung to his things and used people, and it's only after death that he has any semblance of other person-centred care, longing to warn his family, heaven and hell are real, 
repent and believe the good news. It's interesting, isn't it, that the rich man is unnamed in hell and torment, but Lazarus is the one with an eternal identity at the side of Abraham, the father of Israel. Here, this rich religious man who's in hell, having expected his whole life to to live in paradise with father Abraham, highlighting that it's not just natural descent from Abraham that secures your eternal future, but it is faith in the God of Abraham and faith in Abraham's seed, the Lord Jesus. Notice too that hell is permanent and that there is no second chance and that clarity will exist of what is right and what is wrong and what the right response to Jesus ought to be. The man who's labelled rich is not tormented in hell forever because of his wealth. Let's make that clear. What he failed to do, possibly seen in the fact that he hoarded his wealth, what he failed to do and what he wanted to warn his family about was repentance. Repentance towards God, turning away from sin and selfishness, possibly seen in the way that you care for others and let go of your stuff. But repentance is the thing that was needed that he failed to do. Repentance that comes from listening to God's word and turning away from sin and selfishness in response. anything this story should encourage us to listen to Jesus carefully to listen intently and long to respond with the kind of repentance that Jesus calls for because heaven and hell are real to ignore Jesus to not listen to his word and to refuse to repent is eternally dangerous. Well, from this solemn reminder of self-confidence, that is false confidence, Jesus then turns to speak to his disciples about what true confidence is meant to look like. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 17, where Jesus' first picture of self-confidence is watch yourself. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. If they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Here Jesus' picture is that heaven and hell are real and so important, eternity is at stake. So make sure that your life reflects the grace that you've understood from God's word. If you've understood the forgiveness that Jesus brings, if you've understood and experienced the grace of God in forgiving your sins, then you're meant to be a channel of that forgiveness, overflowing with grace in relationship with other people. And you are not to cause someone to stumble by being a picture of obstinance 
a picture of, of vengeance, a picture of resentment that possibly makes them think maybe God's grace isn't so amazing after all. The Bible takes very seriously the fact that forgiven people forgive people. We pray it in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgiven people forgive people. And we extend that kind of grace and forgiveness, not just so that our relationships go well and that we can have reconciled friendships and relationships in this world. We extend forgiveness. We offer grace when people fail us. And we accept grace when we fail others in order that we might not be a stumbling block that gets in the way of someone seeing and experiencing and knowing the amazing grace of God in Jesus. And it's powerful, isn't it? When we're able to be channels of grace and forgiveness in the relationships that we have in this world, powerfully pointing to the amazing grace of God in Jesus. At dinner last night, we were talking about um, the amazing story of Kathy Diosi who was a Hungarian Jew who spent a lot of World War II hiding from the Nazis, who lost her family in concentration camps and eventually came to Sydney where she lived and raised her family. She wrote this great little book called Forgiving Hitler, where she talked about the fact that God forgiving her of her sins is what enabled her to let go of the the vengeful um, bitterness that was building up inside of her. It was the grace of God in Jesus that enabled her to let go of all that resentment and all that vengefulness and demonstrate in the world the costly love that is the forgiveness of God in Jesus. Her grandson's just started as an assistant minister with Anthony Barraclough at West Pimble, by the way. Little side note. As you consider the eternal danger of not listening to Jesus, have you considered the significance of needing to be a channel of forgiveness and grace in your relationships in this world? I hope that that feels enormous and overwhelming and impossible. This is too big for me to carry. This is too big for me to do. How is it that little me can do such a big thing? in repenting of my sins, of offering forgiveness, of being a channel of grace in this world. Well, that's certainly what Jesus' apostles heard. 
And so they said to Jesus, if that's what it looks like, Lord, increase our faith. We're going to need a truckload more if we're actually going to do that. And Jesus' encouragement to them and massive encouragement to us is that you don't need a truckload of faith in order to live out God's will in this world. All you need is the faith of a mustard seed. Faith of a mustard seed, a tiny amount of faith in the all-sufficient Saviour is all that you need for your own eternal salvation and to live out God's will for you in this life. Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. A bad application of this is to go and stand out in the garden and to see who's got enough faith of a mustard seed to overturn the trees. The mulberry tree they talk about as 600-year roots, so well planted that nothing will overturn them. It's a metaphor, right? It's Jesus making a point of saying you don't need a truckload of faith to be able to live the Christian life in this world. You need a very sufficient saviour and even the smallest amount of faith in him. Think about this weather that we've got happening out there. What would you rather? To drive with a lot of confidence in a very weak bridge or to drive with a little bit of confidence in a very strong bridge? Do you see the point? It's not that you need a truckload of faith in order to live out the Christian life and to take hold of Jesus' forgiveness. All you need is the faith of a mustard seed. A tiny bit of faith in an all-sufficient saviour is what you need. It's the object of your faith that counts. That's where the strength is to be found. That's where the power is to be found. That's where all the resources that you need for the Christian life in this world are to be found. Not in here. The whole point is you're meant to say to Jesus, I don't have the resources for this. And he says to you, I know you don't, that's why I'm here. So put your tiny amount of faith in the infinitely broad shoulders of an all-sufficient saviour and you'll not only save yourself, but you'll be able to then live out the Christian life and do God's will in this world. Colin Buchanan did us a service during uh, the pandemic when he put out that song, Jesus, Strong and Kind, which is a picture of us being weak and thirsty and fearful and lost. And him being the all-sufficient saviour that we so desperately need. Jesus said, if I am weak, 
I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross that he will come to me. tiny bit of faith in the all-sufficient Saviour is true confidence for this life and the life to come. And at no point along the way is the point of Jesus' last story. Does it ever revert back to depending on what you have done to secure your status before God and his judgment seat. At no point does he turn to you and say, great job, you've done enough now. At every point along the way, you are an unworthy servant who needs to keep walking step by step and day by day with a tiny mustard seed amount of faith in him alone as the all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-gracious Saviour that he truly is. True confidence, today and tomorrow and forever, is simple faith in Jesus. False confidence, dangerous today and for eternity, is a confidence in yourself and your own resources. Jesus says, come to him. Amen.